1: It can be said that leaders are readers, and we believe books provide us a great source of information for filtering what is and isn't important for us as investors. Investing is the last great liberal art and the best way to spend a lifetime of learning. This podcast is for readers, thinkers, business-minded people, and investors who want to grow their knowledge from great authors and their writing. Charlie Munger often talks about using multiple mental models and analysis. Our aim for this podcast is to help listeners test Munger's theory in business, markets, and people. Hosting this episode alongside me is our chairman and chief investment officer, my co-host, typically, and my dad, Bill Smead. Thanks for joining me. Glad to be here. Awesome. Well, we're we're gonna have just a ball of fun like we have had before with the guests we're having on today. We are going to talk about a framework for understanding the progress of technology and how that will pull up and forward many things in our society. Mark Mills is joining us to talk about the cloud revolution. How the Convergence of New Technologies Will Unleash the Next Economic Boom and a Roaring 2020s. Mark has published three other books, including The Bottomless Well that we discussed with him in the early part of last season of the podcast. Mark is a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute and a faculty fellow at Northwestern University's McCormick School of Engineering and Applied Science. He is also a strategic partner with Rose Lane and Energy Tech Venture Fund. He also hosts, like us, a podcast. His podcast is called The Last Optimist. Earlier in Mark's career, he was an experimental physicist and development engineer at Bell Northern Research at really the dawn of the microprocessor age that we know today. Before we get started with Mark Dad, or what are you looking forward to? I mean, I could say a bunch of things, but I'm sure you got something.
0: I just love the contrarian nature of establishing a much better zeitgeist for the future than what Is standard out there in the marketplace.
1: I agree. And I I think also, Mark, your logic you provide is fun because so much of the garbage that we hear about the future and technology is fairly illogical. So
2: uh, we really appreciate having you on. It's great to come back. I appreciate it. And uh, I I always take umbrage with being labeled a contrarian because I like to believe that my uh, my views echo what reality tells us. And when that's contrarian, it says a lot about the zeitgeist of our times, I guess. I like, yeah. I understand that, but I, it's just, I'm, I'm just kind of following the facts, you know? Sure. Well, I, we appreciate
1: your pragmatism. So, you know, there's some of the concepts that you have in this book where you can kind of hear traces of the bottomless well in, but I wanted to ask you, what, what inspired you to write this book particularly?
2: You know, it's impossible to avoid the uh, fingerprints at the bottom as well, as you know, there's traces of it. In fact, pretty overt threads, mm-hmm. because there's a lot about energy in my book about technology, because it's impossible to have technology without energy, and everything about energy is about using technology to produce it, so it's that uh, symbiosis is built into the book. I, I didn't put anything about energy in the subtitle for a deliberate reason, because I uh, was afraid it would be a misdirection on what the purpose of the book was. Sure. In fact, while I was writing the book, I was talking to my, my co-author, Peter Huber, weekly during the last year of his life. He couldn't, when I say talk to, he couldn't talk back to me. He had uh, a form of uh, dementia that uh, attacked his frontal lobe. He wasn't able to speak. You know, I would talk to him and imagine what he would say back. I could tell by his smile. So it, as I'm writing my book, and thinking about the story I'm trying to tell, but what motivated me was a frustration with pessimism that's in play today because mm-hmm. my own view based on what I see going around us in terms of entrepreneurship, innovation, to what technology is going, advancements of basic science, it's all, all across domains. The, the character of incredible discoveries and innovations are overwhelming if you just spend a little time looking for it. You're not know, clickbait stuff, I mean, the, really the foundational things, and yet, the general zeitgeist is very negative and it's very annoying it's annoying for a lot of reasons partly because i think it's not true that the future is dystopian and makes for sure. science fiction sure but, but more importantly i i said i wrote this in the book and i it was the greatest summation of why i wrote the book in part it's because of what i'm interested in which is sort of technology and progress broadly but also in talking to Joel Moikier at Northwestern University the you know the economic historian who I quote more than any economist in, in my book, you know, economists generally I typically quote with some thinly veiled derision because of <laughs> their ability sure. to forecast. They hindcast. Sure. They don't even hindcast well by and large. But but Joel moiker is a brilliant Nobel class. He should get the Nobel economist, and he led his most recent book with an observation that is animated my book. And what he what he wrote was that most economists don't understand the extent, and I'm paraphrasing, that what people believe determines economic growth more than any other single factor. By that, he didn't mean that people were silly and they believed we could all live in space tomorrow. You know, he didn't mean that. He was talking about their belief in a better future, the belief that technology on average yields more benefits than downsides, those kind of beliefs, and that they're happening now and they can happen now. And that's what animates growth because people... Are optimistic. They take risks in their personal and professional lives based sure. on optimism. So it's not enough just to say the future's going to be better. You know, the old Annie song, The Sun Will Come Out Tomorrow. It's not enough just to say that. You need to demonstrate what it is that's better about the future. You have to explain to people the specifics of why we can believe the near future can be much better than the present. And so that's what I try to do it in in the book, The Cloud Revolution, is look across the landscape of near-term emerging technologies, not aspirational things that we hope might happen one day, or things that people, you know, hand-waving or proof by PowerPoint, but rather, you know, I stole another line from a great uh, philosopher and thinker and business guy, you know, Peter Drucker, where he said a long time ago that he stopped making forecasts after he, Infamously forecast stock market growth the eve of the great stock crash of 1929. So he said, I never forecast after that except for those things that had already happened.
1: Sure. It's a great line. So that's that's the technology.
2: You can use that for technology. You can look at what's happened, what's entering commercial viability, and those are the things that tell you what the near future will look like.
1: Well, I agree. And and by the way, I think you do a really good job, and we'll get into this uh, later, but I think the parallels and the analogous situations from prior technology revolutions, I think you do a good job of kind of teaching your readers about the timelines that those dealt with. So let's kind of jump in. You wrote early on in the book, both biological and technical systems emerge from a necessary combination of underlying components, and for both the ultimate growth is constrained by the same kinds of natural laws, end quote. Explain what you mean by this to our listeners.
2: Well, so most of history is written uh, through, the, through the lens of a thing, like the invention of the car, the invention of the airplane, the invention of the mm-hmm. computer. And these are consequential assemblies of parts. But the fact that they are, are made possible was a confluence of other things that are typically, and almost, almost always, not in the province of the innovator, like Ford or sure. Or Steve Jobs. So let's use the smartphone as an example everybody understands of the 2007, right, uh, introduction of the, yeah, 2007 of the iPhone.
0: Mm-hmm. There wasn't that
2: there were iPhones kind of like things before. They just were not very good. This was a big deal. But the iPhone was made possible by three contemporaneous revolutions, none of which Steve Jobs or Apple had anything to do with. Sure. You know, but, but for... Turning a radio into a uh, into a chip, a semiconductor scale, you know, microprocessor based radio on a chip, that's a huge deal because the smartphone is a radio, obviously. The wireless means it's a radio. Yeah. But if the radio were the size of the earlier, many other radio up to that point in time, you could never carry it in your hand. It'd be in the back of a truck or a briefcase. Apple didn't invent that. It was essential. Apple also did not invent the uh, microprocessor in its other form, which is the logic, but the radio is actually more critical in the sense. The screen that made the handheld device possible, the LCD screen, was not invented by Apple. Its maturation really made possible these little tiny these tiny high-brilliant high screens that don't use much power. And the third revolution, obviously, was the lithium battery because, but for that, the lead-acid battery would have had a form and weight factor four or 500% greater. Those two sure. things together, you know, Steve Jobs, combine their features into a really remarkable product. All these things were independently developed by other innovators and and engineers earlier. And as they reached the maturation, their combination yielded an entirely new product. That's the history of of all modern products or services.
1: And Mark, you you used another example, uh, and you pointed this out in the book, and I think this was really good. And it made me think another question off this, like you point out Apple, they didn't create any of these technologies, but, they obviously did it commercially better than anyone. So did Jeff Bezos. Like he didn't create the internet. He didn't create the smartphone. He didn't create a lot of these things. And yet who made all the money? So I think another thing, and I, I think about this from an investor perspective, these people, you know, it might not be the technology creators. It's the people that leverage the technologies the best, which are two different camps historically looking back. Um, and, and that's probably another theme that we'll talk about through some of our questions. You, you also pointed out early in the book that cycles do take place in these. And you kind of talked about the cyclical nature of this. We have a, a SaaS partner of ours that's a company by the name of Ridgeline and they talk about paradigm chasing. So can you kind of talk about cycles and the paradigm shifts that take place in those cycles?
2: Yeah, the interesting thing about cycles is that people reflexively think that they have a fixed period. The word waves is probably better than cycles. I mean, it's a lot of mm-hmm. you know, economic historians talk because waves can be, they can have a regular period and they may not, right? And of course, road waves are quasi unpredictable, but they result from the harmonic intersection of you know, three, typically three variables, the, the rule of threes again. So what you find with technology is that you get these periods of what uh, uh, the econ- economic historian Perez called eruptions, not E-R, but I-R, you know, incredible things. And in hindsight, they look like they occurred overnight, but invariably they, they have the same feature. And if you think about this and look back at history, there's a remarkable constancy to the time periods, to the features themselves. So you end up with a new idea, you know, something radically, you know, a rate, the idea of a radio, the idea of nuclear fission, if you like, the idea of photoelectric effect, it doesn't really matter, you know, what the idea is. The idea often is, that idea, those kind of ideas can be just profoundly revolutionary in their basic nature. But then from that idea, the idea of using lithium, for example, is a, uh, a foundational chemical for a, a rechargeable battery. The timeline from that idea to the first commercial product that can be in, enter into the market is pretty commonly 20 years. And this has been true for a couple hundred years. It's like, sure. it, it hasn't really accelerated. And then the timeline from the first commercial product to when that product really has widespread viability in terms of being uh, both... Uh, inexpensive enough for the market to use, reliable enough, and uh, and easy enough to use. i so, you the know, three key metrics for any product or service. Very typically 20 to 25 years. This was true for the car, for the airplane, for the computer, for the internet, by the way. Mm-hmm. So, and then from that point to when we have these, you know, large impacts on economies or markets that they enter, it's another 15 to 25 years. So it's a, this, this cycle of waves uh, is repeats itself over and over again. The exact length of time obviously varies depends on the underlying if you feel like physics and inertia of so the economic systems are in and physical systems are in but they're all about the same and what happens of course is that you get lulled in the sense that there's nothing new because once you've gone through a, a period of this eruption of innovation there's a long cycle 20-40 years of maturation, the products get better, the costs come down, industries appear to both make them and use them but they're all about the same stuff there's no there's no new things right so a long period goes goes by and you have sort of this interregnum of no foundationally radically new products or services and then you might get this this uh this sense so, of well we're done we're done with innovation you can look at mm-hmm. your, you know, when you look read history you see this this uh observation being expressed over and over again as as it's been expressed in our time that there's really nothing really, you know, it's better social media, you know, better faster phones, they're not really different. Of course, that's because what's going on is the hard work, the 20 to 40 year, you know, two-step cycle to get before that eruption enters the market is typically going on in the background, you know. It, the Gardner hype cycle is, a, is another version of that, although it's, and it's very clever, uh, and, and it reflects sort of the psychology of how people look at it, which is different than how the actual engineering mark in the markets function, the psychology of mm-hmm. ignoring it, being overexcited about it, you know, the, the hype cycle. And then the product doesn't deliver what the excitement proposed. 3D printing is a good example. It's outside of the, you know, the the telecommunications space. 3D printing, everybody was babbling about how everything would be 3D printed and it'd be just like Star Trek and nobody would ever go to manufacturing was over and all that nonsense between so roughly 2000 and 2010 or 12 and then all that hype's gone. You can't find a story about 3D printing in the popular clickbait tech press. But it is it is as we speak just now entering the the cycle of market uh, insertion at scale. And mm-hmm. it's a big deal. It's a huge deal, but no one's talking about it. We don't have a chips act for it. We haven't it's not on the political radar. Everybody's bored with the hype cuz they got <laughs> they got disappointed. Cut. Yeah. They made the invest, they made the investments at the wrong time and the wrong players. And, and there, like all other ones, to your point about who ends up making the most money. So the picks and shovels guys at the right stage, you make money on, obviously. But then they get commoditized, invariably. And then what you want to do is make a bet on the on the implementers, the users, the FedExes and the Amazons of the world at sure. the right, right stage before they become commoditized. And-
0: You're talking to a guy that started out with a Motorola brick phone and paying $500 a month for the phone service. And then... Craig McCaw spoke at our Rotary Club in Seattle in 1991 and told us exactly everything that Steve Jobs was going to do in 1991, and he sold his business in 1993 to AT&T and made his billions, but no comparison. In your book, you said, and while Moore's observation has been enshrined as law, it's not a law of nature, but a consequence of the nature of silicon engines. Explain this to our listeners.
2: Yeah, we like to call things laws when we look at the nature of industrial and human behavior. I mean, we make economic laws because they they essentially reflect how markets want to function. So they, they're they kind of like laws, right? But what they're following is the real laws. You know, you can't do things that physics doesn't permit, and it's very difficult to do things that people don't like. That is, people like goods and services to be cheaper. They like to travel and, and get be entertained. So all the things that Sort of anchor human behavior, we'll call it. Create derivatively what we call laws of economics or things like Moore's law. So we, we everybody knows what Moore's law is. It's the you know the increased density of transistors per chip or per square inch. Uh, and you know Gordon Moore uh, was the one who observed and codified that and thought that it would continue, and it has. I mean, my very first job was in the uh, semiconductors and microprocessors and large-scale integration, and and you know this would be contemporaneous when Gordon Moore wrote that. And and it was obvious all of us working in that business, what we were trying to do. You weren't trying to make computers, uh, transistors smaller for the sake of making them smaller. You're doing it because the only way you can make them faster is to make them smaller. (laughs) They use less energy when they're smaller. So the chase for small was to take energy out of each operation. And of course the size had a lot to do with it. As you think about the consequence, the consequence of that it's not just the size of the devices. You guys know, and everybody knows. It's with with cost be damned, it would be irrelevant, right? It's what really matters is not not pay for the chip, but what you pay for the computations per second. Whether you buy mm-hmm. it as a product or a service, you want to know how many computations per second am I buying when I spend a dollar? And of course, if you is if you make the transistors smaller and faster, and you make the overall device cheaper per transistor or cheaper per logic operation, then you get a very interesting economic curve, a really big impact on economies.
0: Explain how CPUs sitting next to GPUs in computers create such a powerful combination.
2: Well, I think for most people, to be clear, what maybe everybody in Europe in your orbit knows and your audience knows, that CPU is the central processing unit and GPU is a graphics processing unit. Put simplistically, a CPU uh, calculates, computes. You wanna know what the answer to one plus one is. A GPU, a graphics processing unit, really, we have to credit NVIDIA with uh, inventing the class, although there were graphics processors before that by, in a, in a very kludgy, ham-handed way, using CPUs to you know do graphics production and graphics imaging by just brute force. But if you made a different class of silicon processor, that essentially is made to not do calculations, but to handle, recognize, assimilate, you know, stored images, you get a GPU. It turns out that GPUs were exactly the kind of uh, device you need to do inference, because, you know, what a picture looks like is not the same as the answer to a calculation. It has to be precisely one plus one equals two. A picture can be about right. That's what inference is, that's what most of what human activities are about. They're about being a, mostly right in inferring what the probably really close answer is. That's what, of course, self-driving a vehicle is about. You don't need to have exactly the right answer. You have to get close to the right answer. Mm-hmm. So the, the mathematics of inference are very, very difficult and complicated. And running inference in a computer that calculates is incredibly slow and compute intensive. Running it in a graphics processing unit, of course, is what unlocked AI. But GPUs like CPUs had to get a lot better than you know they were essentially. Nvidia introduced the GPU in 1999, and in no coincidence it took a couple decades to the same cycle for the GPUs to become powerful enough and cheap enough that sitting alongside of CPUs, CPUs do we'll call it the management function of what you would do for inference, reading X-rays, guessing what people want to buy, while the GPUs do the inference function complementary I mean it's no no different than how all systems operate
0: how has all this changed since 1900 I because you mentioned co- computation
1: per dollar mark and so can you kind of take us back to the mechanical computation versus the
2: microprocessor versus the GPU this is what's fascinating it's not just the it's not just the change in device but it's the change in how we use the device so mm-hmm. you go from the first computer and as uh, I like, I note and cite the books on this. The first computer, the word computers is, uh, is a name created for a person, not for a machine. Sure. Uh, businesses hired people to do computing and they were called computers. And we had rooms full of computers. And they were, you know, people doing calculations by hand. We used it with pencils and that's what accounting departments had. And computers, in fact, as you know, uh, computers, typically women uh, in the Nassau days has led to a, a famous movie, and I think an Academy Award, right? Uh, even in the even in the '60s, we still used lots of human computers to assist the electronic computers. So the first computer was, and the first computer rooms were rooms full of people. And we know, uh, based on what wages were, how many computations per second per dollar you could you would get for, for that sure. dollar. And when the electromechanical computers came along. We really accelerated that. And that, that metric, that key economic metric, improved by sevenfold per decade. So the in- engineering efficiencies and, and innovations uh, improved that by sevenfold per decade from the, um, from the early 1900s through, through World War II. This is not nothing. I mean, it'd be, this would be the equivalent, as you know, of at the end of, that, of a decade being able to buy 700% more food or fuel for the same dollar. I mean, these are very consequential, but it's very consequential in a very small part of the market, the part of the market where you replace accounts with pencils. It it didn't impact the society at large. Of course, then the electronic age came along, and that's where we got our first, you know, real computers, as we've come to call them, since the 1950s. And the engineering improvements going from vacuum tube to transistor to large-scale integration and following Moore's Law... That, that saw that metric, the computations per second per dollar, accelerate to 16-fold per decade. So, mm-hmm. Or put, you know, in food and fuel terms, that would be like getting 2,000%, nearly 2,000% more food or fuel per the same dollar spent after a decade. Incredible. And, of course, it wasn't just the economic utility accelerated, but the, dis, the, dis, the, uh, the democratization of that incredibly valuable function of computations per second was distributed not first to mainframes into every building and every university, and every bank, but then into desktops. And in that era, that's the beginning, of course, of the handheld, the smartphone era began on the tail end of that first, what I call pre-cloud era. And then we reached a new tipping point, which is what we can call it the cloudification at all, or in economist terms, turning the compute function into a utility sure. so that the epicenter of horsepower goes to the center and is managed in data centers and, and democratized through wired and wireless networks. But, but the combination of creating the utility function and the continued improvement in the core technology, the CPUs and GPUs, vaulted the economic metric up to a, a thousand-fold improvement per decade in terms of the calculations per second you could buy per dollar. This is, I mean, this is a really uh, incredible acceleration of economic value, contemporaneous with fully democratizing that economic uh, utility to everybody and everything on the planet. I mean, there's billions of people now have connectivity to the cloud. This is utterly unprecedented in human history in terms of the scale and the reach of the infrastructure combined with the continuing acceleration of the economic value of the infrastructure. Nothing like that has happened at that scale or that fast ever in history and which is of course why I'm profoundly optimistic very hard to guess what all the consequences of that will be but there have to be consequences for something that that powerful
1: agree so in your nodes 3.0 section of the book you talk about you know these processors and like power coming to them that's not present in them so like think about like radio as an example going to a chip for example when i go get on the lift at a Vail Resort owned, you know, resort, uh, and I use my Epic Pass, is that an example where, you know, there's a processor, it's shooting out a radio, it's hitting that chip and it's coming back to it to say, hey, this is Cole Smead getting on the lift. Is that that kind of like non-resident power that you're talking about for these chips?
2: Exactly, I mean, this is what's, one does this with Pass. that's the most common one everybody has experience with. Is- yep. There's no battery in your easy pass, pass because what's going on is the logic in that easy pass or your, your whatever the device is, getting on a ski lift, the, the logic is powered by the interrogation radio wave itself. So the radio yeah. wave that comes at it does two things. It asks the question and donates power to the, to the chip. That doesn't, and, you know you can put some modest power storage on these these chips but you, that's not the point the point is you'll want to be able to combine the two features mm-hmm. and of course Moore's law allows you to chase the uh, energy cost of the logic down down you know to the uh, down to the bottom on the, the famous Feynman line but there's plenty of room at the bottom so you keep chasing that logic curve down and what you've now done is you've caused the the nature of the network the edges to expand not only in uh, the quantity of things that can be made smart and interrogated without wires, but the uh, ubiquity of doing this in anything, anywhere, for whatever economic or social pur- purpose might have value.
0: Yeah. Mark, you pointed out the first radio to ever broadcast a commercial wireless signal required a dedicated several hundred kilowatt power plant Co- next coal-fired. door. Coal fired. Coal fired. Doesn't this prove that all emerging technologies always require massive energy?
2: Oh, that's true uh and you can chase this across every every uh, class of technology including um chat gpt right now i mean doesn't matter what the technology is in the early stages we, we have very low efficacy but whatever the efficacy measure is whether it's making drugs an artificial intelligence engine or radio even cars if you just think about airplanes and all all of them is is uh the engineering follows the science and chases the uh the the curve down not just on cost but in in energy efficacy what happens is people get seduced by that magical trend and think it can happen forever and it's infinite the energy the energy one like everything in nature back to laws of nature everything has an asymptote or everything reaches limits Uh, so as you approach the limits it doesn't mean you can't find new innovation it means you have to use the proverbial workaround you have to change their engines. You have to change the modalities. You have to have new inventions.
0: This reminds us of uh, the Google data center in Gilder's book. Cole's first cousin put the smooth floor in the Amazon data center near Prineville, close to the Dallas Dam. Google was the Dallas Dam, but the other one was the dam up up the river from there. It needs energy like the aluminum smelters did. The smelters are gone now. Doesn't it explain that even the data center will find their own death at some point?
2: (laughs) So, George and I have a a side debate on this. I think think the answer is no, for the reasons of the nature of the architecture of systems. Uh, You know, the the peach analogy is what is used many times about systems and networks. The networks are where all the action is on the edge, because the surface expands faster as you make the balloon bigger or the peach bigger. The core is still needed, and the core has a different... But what happens is the function of the core changes. Uh, And this is what's going on already, so edge networks are part of the cloud. So rather than having and you're absolutely right, there is a there's a natural limit to the scales of all things and engineers mm-hmm. usually figure it out by going too far. So we did this with airplanes in a sense. The A three eighty is not a successful airplane. Not because it's not a great aircraft. It's an incredible aircraft. It's because there's limited utility. As you make them too big, it takes away the rest of the utility function.
1: Or the Spruce Goose, right? Howard Hughes
2: Spruce Goose. Exactly, exactly. We did it with nuclear power plants. The French built the Super Phoenix Breeder Reactor, never finished it, it was huge. I actually visited it back when it was under construction in France. The nature of engineers is not to try to figure out by a paper or PowerPoint where the limit of scales matter. It's they just keep building it. It's not. The physical limit of scale—you could build big airplanes. It's the system limit of the scale, which actually has high utility value, and of course that varies by definition depending on the product. But there always is a limit, but that doesn't mean that it's the end of data centers. It's a there's a natural limit to a hyperscale data centers, in the in the sense of how many data centers do you need that have more square footage than the Burj Khalifa uh, tower, and that use. The power of a city. I mean, a data center that gobbles 100 megawatts, which is what the big ones do now. It has a location challenge. Once you put a few of them in a place, you can't, you can't actually power it. I have a theory how they're going to power them. I mean, we already seen hints of what will happen next, which, you know, is perhaps obviously, you know, small nukes. You, this, those are the people that should be investing in small nukes.
0: You just made me think of the Washington Public Power Supply System.
1: Yeah. So on this, uh, I want to on a pivot to – because you make some you make a comment about 5G. You wrote, as 5G becomes ubiquitous, each mobile user will have access to 100-fold increase in bandwidth capacity, and each network cell will handle 100 times the number of connected devices and 1,000 times more data traffic per square mile, end quote. While we don't disagree with your view and statement of 5G, we also think about the rate of change because to your point – you know, there's maxims and there's limits. So, you know, 4G was a big pickup in terms of speed and what we do. 5G is a big pickup in terms of what can be done. But relative to 4G, it's to quote Mike Fries, a former holding of ours, our investors, he said, uh, the CEO of Liberty Global, he said that 5G will be evolutionary, not revolutionary. Okay. And so I, I want to ask, I want to throw that out to you and ask you, like 4G was revolutionary. Just look at me watching Hulu on my phone. It proves that 4G is revolutionary. Do you look at that that same way? And do you agree with Freeze's view of that?
2: Well, not entirely. I mean, this, these are the nuances that matter. I agree that going uh, to 4G was a big step function and therefore revolutionary in terms of sure. the bandwidth that handle. And I agree that the incremental change from 4G to 5G is is less of a, uh, a, a smaller leap. Sure. However, the question that's been raised about five G correctly is the use case. Because to your point, if I can I don't need five G to stream to stream live video at a quality that people find.
1: I know where you're going, with that Mark. So I'm going to ask the second question because I know exactly where you're going. So would you agree with Freeze from a consumer perspective versus what you're about to say? Is how do you look at this from a commercial perspective?
2: Well. Again, yes and no. So the cons- the consumer use case is fully met with four G with, mm-hmm. with the products the consumers are now using. Correct. And the commercial use cases are are, are agreed to set us serve with things we already know we'd like to use in the commercial environment. The mm-hmm. problem is the commercial use cases, in terms of volume, for the providers, is too small, right, to justify the capital.
1: It's missing right now, in effect.
2: So the. There's two, let's use two examples that are obvious that you you know these examples. And the, there's a, cl- these are classic examples of getting timing right and looking at the nature of the underlying cycles of the technologies. For the consumer side, the use case for needing more bandwidth than 4G can deliver is, is obviously going to, are things like VR and AR. Uh, it, it, rendering voxels instead of pixels, going to real three-dimensional, not gaming, but Anything that involves that class of visual imaging, uh, 4G will have a problem. You're going to need 5G. But we also know that the products that are being offered, and we'll wait, let's see what Apple's going to unveil soon, but the products that are being offered are you know, not much better than the, the embarrassing introduction of Google Glass, right? I mean, it mm-hmm. was called the glass hole when these little scenes came out. So there, there, there's a, there's a challenge on the use case on the consumer side. So you'd have to ask yourself if you look at the, the use case stuff on the consumer side, do we really believe that we're, we're never gonna deliver, by never I mean within the usefully foreseeable future, that we can deliver products that um, that are fully immersive, that that have voxels and not pixels? I think the data and, and evidence on that are overwhelming in the case if that's what's coming. But we, we haven't seen a product equivalent to the iPhone, the smartphone, mm-hmm. being introduced yet that will stimulate that demand. Commercial side, the use cases are—I'll—I'll say the one that's most likely to come sooner. But the commercial side, it's the—the edge requirements for true automation in the majority of industries and transportation. The bandwidth, the combination of bandwidth and latency required for the scale of information to control systems like cars and dead serpent cores or like robots in industrial environments. Mm -hmm. These are extremely bandwidth intensive, very very data rich. machines that you you can't put enough processing horsepower in the machines to do the function you need it. it's going to have sure. to be resident nearby the edge data centers that use case is in is fact you could argue almost here now if not here now in many cases but if you're the industrial customer that wants to have this kind of control system you're buying private networks in fact a company that i like you, you guys may not have heard of it's a private company called Regent. they've made uh a, what you could call a 5G level wireless mesh network for mining and industrial environments and military that is aston- it's just astonishingly robust and fast because their first customer was the military, which was trying to handle high data requirements of autonomy in very difficult environments, you know, yeah. where there's no, no networks. So they have to bring their own network in a sense. So the technology is clearly there because it exists. You can buy it now but it's not there at scale. So I, long way of saying I agree with them that the revolution is not is not that going from 4G to 5G is itself revolutionary, but in combination with the other technologies, back to my sort of rule threes, the combination of all these products are in fact revolutionary.
1: Yeah, so I wanna hit on the data centers because I, I heard an interesting podcast recently where Jim Chanos was talking about how he was shorting the data centers, okay? And as you talked about, you know, I mean, the, the growth of the data center business has been remarkable the last 20 years in a way that, you know, most people would have never predicted that, you know, data centers, you know, in the early 2000s would get to, you know, where they are today. But he also contrasts what he calls the superscalers, Microsoft, Apple, Google, and Amazon versus the kind of the legacy data centers. And he looks at the legacy data centers, which are obviously REITs. And, and he looks at it as kind of like, it's the biggest misallocation of capital he's seen in a long time. So how do you look at the big players, those big tech companies go, going into hosting versus kind of the legacy data center model?
2: It's interesting. So this is where we get into the, the intersection of the, of the sort of three domains. You know, what does the technology permit issue? What, you know, where, where does it want to go? I guess the way of putting it. Then what are the markets doing behaviorally uh, because the use cases for data centers are now v- incredibly varied beyond beyond obviously. I mean, banking and hospital use cases are very different sure. from movie streaming movie use cases. E- and everybody has a use case now because ev- everything is getting digitalized. And then the, the third domain that always intersects the real world, which I wrote very little about in my book for deliberate reasons, which is the uh, political public policy world, I would say... I think there's three things going on. And, so, and again, set aside the short-term cycles of whether it is over or under because sure. these industries are always cyclically build, over-building and underbuilding. It's the nature of... Sure. By definition, you can't know the future well enough to not over or under-build. So I don't care if it's roads or data centers or pharmaceuticals. So that, set that aside, we, we know a few things, I would say, in principle. We know that the world is under-digitalized that the, the number of things that, w- for which we like to collect information and do, and do analytics on it that are meaningful are, are, is underserved and under-digitalized profoundly. Um, and we know that because if you talk to anybody in any business about what their use experience with most of the new things you're doing, they, you don't get a good report card, right? It's pretty, pretty hard to use except for what we'll call the 20% of the economy that's heavily digitalized, which is sure. news, entertainment, and so on. So we have an under-digitalized environment with an infinite demand for data. I mean, this is the only place in which there's infinite demand. Everything else has saturation. There's essentially no limit to the granularity of quantity of data I might want to collect about some commercial activity product or product, whatever. Because mm-hmm. granularity is everybody... Everybody wants more granularity and they want higher velocities and they and they want to know more about what they've collected, which is, again, processing power. The combination of... Processing power and the data, which suggests that it's going to have to happen somewhere, and it's going to happen in data centers. And as the leading edge pulls the users along, which is where you're going to find Exascale, Exaflop computers in the Amazon and Microsoft data centers. But the trailing edge, it doesn't need Exaflop, it needs Petaflop, but you don't put Petaflop in your basement. So the trailing edge is, is, is filled up by that other class of users. I, I think that scale of demand for data centers, again, we'll still go a decade up, fastly exceeds the supply that exists today. Question is, who, where will they physically be located? And which businesses need which class of, of data centers? The idea that all the data centers of the world and the functionality of data centers will, will be owned by, pick a number, three or three to six players, it seems to me very, very hard case to make because, again, it's, Quite unlike the electric utility model, which I use a little bit and many many others have used to analogize the cloud, the problem with the electric utility model is, it's a utility function in democratizing stuff. It's a good model. But from a physics perspective, it's a really bad model because there are only so many lumens anybody wants in any building.
1: Well, also from a security perspective, too, you, you tie everyone together. I mean, to your point... If you want to ruin the world, you kill three to six companies, uh, and you can ruin the world.
2: Yeah, you know, and this is true for electric grids from most countries, not America, as you know we have, we have uh, over half a dozen grids, arguably ten. Yeah. So there's there's no way to kill the grid because there is no the, the grid, and it's true for every financial institution of any consequence It's not in any shared cloud. Amazon's or anybody's, they have their own data centers. That's not going to change. Totally. It, and that's going to be increasingly true for. Uh, We'll call high value assets. And then you add the political feature to this, which oh, yeah. is, of course, the EU rule, which affects the rest of the world, is that the primary data has to be resident in the country in which the primary activities occurred. Well, okay. By definition, you're going to overbuild data centers because the economic efficiency would suggest you don't do that. Well, we overbuilt car manufacturing for the same reason. We actually yeah. overbuilt.
1: Well, and you haven't mentioned John Sherman yet either. Yeah. Well, so I would, real real quick on the data center. So you mentioned the one in Reno, which is, you know, one of the largest in the world. I love Reno. Here's my question, though. And you point out there's higher rent per square foot there than there is for the Burj Khalifa in Dubai. Okay. Now, let me, let me go one step further. We ask and want to kind of think about this question because we've thought a lot about internally here about this tug of war that suddenly showed up between labor and capital. So that place has, to your point, that is a capital game, that data center is all about capital, but the Burj Khalifa is actually about labor. And so how do you think about that? It's like a paradox in a way um, about that tug of war.
2: The tug of war is inherent in every business decision, um, mm-hmm. whether you deploy capital for growth or you, de- uh, or you hire people. So on mm-hmm. CapEx versus OpEx, right? And, and it's always a tug of war and the tug of war is always dynamic because of the, the, the two things that are hard to predict but you sort of have to watch how they evolve, is you, you're trying to guess when the CapEx, the equipment, the hardware, is a better bet than more people. Uh, and the people question, it really relates to not just what the people cost, but it also has to do with the dynamism of the business that you're in. If things change and you make a CapEx decision, typically the equipment is locked into the present and doesn't change with the future, to say the obvious. Whereas the person can be retrained on the fly. The humans are really, really adaptable. They're really good at that. So that, that, that tug of war is, is, is wired into things. And why, again, this is why I think what's incredible about the time we live in. So that tug of war has had the uh, sort of a fixed battle lines because the humans are adaptable. You can pay them more or less, try retrain them. The machines are not, but they're more efficient. So for, for high volume stuff, you can't beat the machine. For the low, lower volume or more dynamic and too soft, you can't beat the human. And then yeah. so never the twain shall meet until now. <laughs> this yeah. incredible. Yep. You,
1: you talk about a commercial data tsunami coming in the 2020s from all these connected devices. Think of our conversation where we just talked about like 5G and manufacturing and things like that, as an example, is there a risk? And this is kind of a framework question. Is there a risk that we have to let some data go as we won't have enough capacity to retain. And I asked this because in the brokerage firms in the 1960s, there were a lot of failures, not because the brokerage business wasn't doing well, they were booming, stock trading was off the charts. It was because the paper trail caused them to fail because they couldn't settle trades, therefore they failed on their equity. Is there a possibility where we run into this situation where, great, we got all this data, and oh, by the way, we gotta get rid of it because the energy or the capacity don't meet that data.
2: No, I don't think so. Okay. But I don't think so from a capacity or energy perspective. I do think so from the viewpoint of the utility function. So okay. we're already learning this. So, but the deal with the energy and resource side, once you're storing data, if storing information is accelerating. The efficacy of storing information is, is accelerating at about double the Moore's Law rate. So the Moore's Law rate in CPUs and GPUs continues. But if you look at the energy cost of storage and draw out the same curve, it's uh, it's uh, an exponential that is far, far faster than Moore's Law. And it's, okay. it, it hasn't ended. This is back to Feynman's rule, you know, play the room at the bottom. And you can store information passively. Once you've stored it, if you don't need quick access, I mean, you probably know Facebook stores a lot of their, their legacy data literally in, uh, you know, CD-ROM, you know, uh, uh, Blu-ray discs that are giant robot-operated cassette players. <laughs> Yeah, could go find your disk because you don't need the cat video in a millisecond. You you can wait at one second for it to find the cat video. Totally. So the energetics are the problem. The problem is uh, data overload in this sense. If you collect more data than you need, uh, let's it could be for a regulatory sense, but let's just say more data than you need doing research or analysis. Uh, it it's not that co- it doesn't cost you much to store it. It costs you to process it. It takes time, even yeah. with, even with exaflop computers. So a lot, a lot of what is happening now and one of the sort of innovations in software, of course, is what you might call data curation or, you know, analytics on the fly. So this began in the, um, in the astronomy community. I mean, uh, I wrote about this in my book, but not as deeply as I could have. But in order to, to collect the data to make the first image of a black hole, that project was a, uh, a, a multi-exaflop project in terms of data that was coming in and collected on a virtual telescope the size of the Earth. It's astonishing, astonishing engineering feat. But the quantity of data, uh, oh, by the way, they, they call their information sharing for that network the sneaker net because the data quantities are too great to, to send either by by satellite or by fiber. Uh, you take the hard drives and physically carry them on a plane to uh, the central place to blow, upload wow. them from around the world. Wow. So the sneaker, wow. sneaker net was cheaper, faster. But what they did is they developed a uh, software system which is starting to show up in commerce and research that is on a use case specific basis determines what data is useful and should be stored. So in effect, what we do with compression when we want to send a picture, we take white space out, and reassemble the picture. That compression, but now you're doing it at the front end in the data acquisition because the quantities of data are too great to be functionally useful. Now, there's risk in that, right? I mean, obviously, it's it's kind of like um, you know, the, the obviously, do, am I going to scrub out data that would, in hindsight, I should have had because it would have been useful? But the reality is, you have no choice because the data quantities sure. are so great.
1: Yeah, so um, uh, back to space, because we're there. Uh, NASA has cataloged many products and many of these products have become indirect spinoffs. And you talk about like the x-ray technology, for example, that, that NASA had in space. Um, I, this brought us to a really interesting conversation that we just had with Margaret O'Meara uh, in her book, The Code, where, I mean, we run into these, these you know technology executives who act like they're these egalitarian, libertarian, capitalistic, when in reality, the government spending at the beginning was the largest that made the technology, okay? So, and I think of like Palantir, who's the first customer? Government, that was the only customer. And by the way, they funded the business in effect as well. So, you know, how do you look at the government's role in, I'll call it the initial explosion of capital in these new technologies?
2: Well, this is a really important question in terms of the intersection of uh, the domains that that that's, that my book centers on is, you know, the what what leads to innovation, and then what leads innovation to be useful, commercialized. Mm-hmm. What's the role of government? And right now we have a full full fledged uh, assault on innovation in the sense that the governments everywhere are convinced they know who the innovators are, and what needs to be innovated.
1: Just innovation, Mark?
2: <laughs> <laughs> We're gonna stick to the subject of the book as opposed, as opposed to your, your, how you choose to identify it. all the rest of the things that are going on. Look, the, the, I am uh, not only a, a believer in the role of government, but it's, I think it's clear from history, to your point, of, there's many examples of uh, an extremely important catalytic role of government in early stages of many technologies, an extremely important and underappreciated and now egregiously underfunded role of government supporting basic, unpredictable research. Yeah. And I use the word unpredictable for that obvious reasons. because Governments tend to think, and policymakers today especially, including the potentates of technology and the technorati all think that innovation is like a cafeteria. And you go in and you can pick and choose. Uh, it's not how foundational innovation happens. It happens fundamentally by serendipity that's directed, but directed only in the sense that general, the general area of inquiry might be chemistry or physics or mechanics or flying or computing. But beyond that, we have no idea where the breakthrough is going to come from. Yeah. And that's never funded, not never. In our times, it's not funded by private industry, and it's underfunded by government. So what we have, however, are the people who correctly observe that the dawn of LSI, courtesy of the government, order, the Palantir owes a lot to the government's contracts and orders. The aircraft itself owes owes a lot to the the government role early on. The computer, obviously, famously, uh, with ENIAC and, and predating that Colossus. Uh, but the first computer predated the wars. It was, you know, in Iowa in 1936.
0: Mark, you're jumping the gun on the next question. So I'm going to jump you're in right on. Yeah, you're spot I, on. You're spot on. Uh, you talk a lot about serendipity and technological innovation. You discuss Jan, and I have a hard time pronouncing his name. Ch- Ch- so- Is it Chakrosky? Chakrosky? Accidentally found pure crystalline silicon. When I read that story, it's like God revealed to him what was already true, Nothing is created, it's found. Aren't these just revelations? Well, yeah, there's
2: a there's, isn't there a chapter of the Bible called Revelation? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, yes. So here's, so the Tchaikovsky uh, process for making crystalline silicon, named after Jan Tchaikovsky, uh, is a great example of serendipity, and it's exactly like the discovery of penicillin. Uh, so two things happened. Serendipity happens, but it happens to somebody who recognizes that it is important. So you can't, you don't. They understand what they found. In other they, words, exactly. You can't, you can't fund the um, uh, the backhoe driver to get you the serendipity. Nothing wrong with the backhoe drivers. I, you know, I used to ride around in backhoes and work on them as a young man. But that's a skill. But doesn't have the skill to recognize the value of uh, penicillin or pure. Utterly magical crystal and silicon. To your point, it is a the revelation of th- something that's possible. Whether you imagined it in your head because you're doing research on something collateral, or you saw it happen. You know, a trivial example of course was Teflon, which NASA uh, accidentally discovered. And but but the chemist who discovered it was a chemist, and he understood why Teflon was important once it once once it accidentally appeared in his formulation. That. That is one of the most bizarre features of discovery and innovation, and most magical, philosophically and theologically fascinating. We, we, we don't have, we invented none of the atoms that exist in the universe, but we don't have, a, the, the suite of atoms is fixed. We, we aren't discovering any new atoms on the periodic table. Mm-hmm. And the forces that exist that uh, enable different combinations of those atoms are, are very limited in number. We know what they are. We know a lot about them. And yet, we keep discovering, unveiling, new combinations of those forces and atoms that do things that are utterly magical. You know, the old Arthur C. Clarke line about, about magic and, and technology. So yes, so how do you, but how do you get more of that? Well, you, you let r- smart people who are curious pursue their passions. All of history has shown that that has led to all the kinds of magic that we really like, and products that are profound, and products that are trivial.
0: It's like throwing spaghetti up on the wall and seeing what sticks, but it's also a needle it's a needle in a haystack really isn't it from from a like I see all these funds formed to invest in innovation and it just looks to me like a lot of a, a lot of searching for needles in a haystack.
1: Well yeah, but the question is is it going to create the new technology or is it going to heavily use the technology way better than the prior companies that did? Yeah. I mean that's kind of the two sides of it.
2: Well, I think that the let's use uh, the, as an investor uh, this is the challenge I think a lot of investment funds have looking at a trying to invest in a profound innovation a radical change something that comes from the serendipity the only place that comes from fundamentally is that you you, you, you give money with no strings attached to a university to give uh, endowments and high salaries to really bright people to pursue their passions and, but that's not that's not investable in the sense of getting a better product right and pretending that you can make that happen, Back to my analogy that it's like a cafeteria. I just go in, pick the domain. It's solar photovoltaics or it's a battery. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come up with a magic battery. The, the next generation of electricity storage is not going to come from a venture fund. I, I just don't believe it. But the next generation of electricity storage will be revolutionary and a bigger step than going from lead acid to lithium will, will probably come from an unexpected researcher somewhere, sometime... Sure. Figuring out how to make a uh, stable uh, and manufacturable room temperature superconductor. Mm-hmm. We have no idea where that will come yeah. from. You
0: point out the progress being made between wealthy and poorer nations. Wealthy nations have 800 cars per 1,000 people. Poorer nations have 100 people per car. Is, is the Western world just being smugged to the realities of economic growth and progress by trying to treat every country like it's the USA or Amsterdam?
2: Well, yeah, that's that's the that's the question that answers itself, as they say. <laughs> like, of course, I mean the the arrogance to think that we've we've reached the uh, you know the apotheosis of technology development and human flourishing because we're so well off we can tolerate some deprivation in our daily lives, which is sort of the goals of governments to reach other political and social objectives. I mean, really, is a profoundly arrogant and and worse than that, it's profoundly amoral, immoral. immoral
1: or also, uh, inhuman too. It's a, it's a hate, it's a hate of humanity versus to your point, if this is not the climax of society, um, why sacrifice? Let's continue to build what we have. Therefore you don't sacrifice cause you're not there yet.
2: Well, I, and I think that the goals that we're being told that we're pursuing, uh, broadly speaking, are always about, um, utilization of the planet's resources. I don't care whether it's, you know, the, the land or the, Food or fuel or materials—it's always about that. And we we know we know that the solution to that is a combination of wealth and technology. We can. Mm-hmm. There's, there's no, you know, it's kind of funny um, the Elon Musk's latest uh, a plan that he announced about you know energy for the future. The one thing he he and I I certainly agree with with their plan is was how he began. He began by taking it from a perspective of optimism that the world, the world could sustainably support farmer human beings that exist now and I think he might actually have said uh, you know hundreds of billions or more and I and I agree in fact I think that's unequivocally the case that, that, that we 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 know that the inherent capacities exist we just haven't discovered we haven't had the, the revelations yet and what those technologies are great okay. that doesn't mean they won't happen but we do know what they, they they won't we do know how they will not happen which is governments spending more money on yesterday's technologies as opposed to unleashing sort of the imaginations of uh, of engineers and scientists and innovators to pursue passions and dreams.
1: Well, agree, because they uh, they assume that there's a lot of finiteness to this earth and this world. Um, And as we know, there's far more infinite uh, than there is finite um, time and time again. Uh, I wanna jump to kind of a particular case because I always love this and I always heighten this example and you you had this in your prior book. You explained that LEDs have reduced coal use because of its efficiency. But LEDs didn't cause a decline of energy use, right? The part of the lie of today is like, oh, we're gonna be so much more efficient. So we're gonna use less, you know, energy compared to the ludites of yesterday. And um, therefore, we're all better off.
0: That's the zeitgeist. Are, are,
1: yeah, are we just using? Uh, aren't we just using more LEDs in our house? I mean, like your house is so much better lit. Why? Because the LED is more efficient, but you use twenty times the lights that you used to. Um, isn't it the wealth effect that you commented on just a second ago? Really, what policymakers miss because that enhanced wealth causes you to use more. Well,
2: I, well certainly, absolutely. So the this is the old. Um, Misnomer, the Jevons paradox, the rebound effect, that you know, efficiency doesn't cut demand, it actually fuels demand, until, again, there's always saturation. There's only so many lumens you want in a room. So you get to a point where you have enough lumens even with LEDs. Lumens, of course, are the, the, the illumination itself, not the power to create the illumination. So if I make the power to create the illumination sensory free, then the market will saturate to the level of lumens people really want. Mm-hmm. And that's essentially what's happening. And until everybody in the world is lit up, and we know this from the famous pictures from space, that you know about 80% of the world is not lit up. So, correct, we, we, we got a sort of a 10x increase in unmet demand for lumens, let's just say. And, uh, thank, thank goodness for the invention of the semiconductor light bulb, you know, the LED that'll make it achievable, but you're but that will saturate too eventually. But if you think about it. What's happened to your point is that it didn't mean electric demand went away. It it is true that the absolute demand for electricity, for lumens, uh, dropped faster than the absolute quantity of lumen consumption, if you like, in the Western world. So the net quantity of electricity directed to illumination still slid down instead of up, even as the quantity of the product, lumens, went up. Mm -hmm. But electric demand roughly stay flat. So the question I pose to people who look at innovation, especially as it tends to efficiency is that we know that air conditioners are today are roughly 40 to 50% more efficient than they were 20 years ago. Refrigerators are almost twice as efficient. Light bulbs are 10 times more efficient. Motors have improved in their efficiency. So how come electric demand didn't go down? Because the population only went up, you know, 10 to 20% in that time period. I mean, with this massive increases in efficiency, the reason absolute demand did go down is because we thought other uses, not just more lumens, but much more importantly, to use the obvious example, data centers and computing and telecommunications filled the gap, if you like, that we ended up with a net new source of electric demand. And so if you look at the future from the viewpoint of what are the unmet needs of humans, what else would we like to do? Never mind people who are poor, who don't have even what we have, but what are the unmet demands that most people still have? Well, what are they? Well, there was no demand for cars before the invention of the car by definition, and to pretend that there's nothing being invented that isn't as consequential in material, energy, and human use terms as the car means that you believe that we've invented everything that could ever be invented, which of course yeah. is, you know, prima yeah. facie silly.
1: So, so let's go. Let's go one step further on cars because. I mean, the other part of this technology side, I, I got thinking, and and I, I such a great theme in your book, Mark, was the idea that the new pulls the old forward. Okay, the, the new pulls the the old forward. So you get into your section on three D printing, and immediately it hits me. Uh, I, just so, in full disclosure, uh, Mark, and I, I think our listeners already know this, but uh, I my my weekend driver is a two thousand five Ford Excursion the king of the SUVs, okay? And it has has a turbo diesel V8 in it, right? So I get to see what diesel's work was up front. Um, The catch is that it's a 2005, and so I had a situation where, you know, I had to uh, try and get a piece for an AC line that had gone about a metal line. And so it had to be custom made by the human, when in reality, in the world we're going to, Ford could send the specs to that to a 3D, 3D printer uh, for, that does a metal fabrication, and I would pick it up later that week or have it delivered to my house, and and it would cost far less than having the person bend it for me. Okay. Well,
2: this is this has uh, been, of course, this is a, back to your original point uh, of how the government has been involved in this particular benefit of keeping old equipment around without having to have. Expensive spares on hand for everything that's a piece of equipment that may be 50 years old, not sure. 15 years old, and which is the military. And of course, they have long sought not only keeping spares in digital form, but if you don't have the digital um, version of the spare, you can scan it with high-resolution imaging and X-rays to and look at what it. the part is and create it. I yeah. had a, a personal experience with this 3D printing on a car part myself. I have a 89560 SL, which is a classic last year that Mercedes made that uh, soft top car and the plastic uh, uh, pivot that holds the sun visor aged out in the sun because I leave the top off all the time broke. Sure. And you, sure. you can't get the part. First world problem, by the way. I, well, that's a classic first world problem. Thing is flopping around and uh, the, the shop that does it uh, got, you know, a 3D printed part. There's a, there's a, there's a, uh, a, a whole, a or, orbit, a uh, whole ecosystem of manufacturers with 3D printers and plastics and metals designed for that kind of part production, either because they've, they've got the original part specs or they, you know, take one and scan it and they make it. The, but it that feature alone, both for, it's not just for prototyping, but for repair and extension of life of an old product, really big deal. Creation of new class of products that weren't possible to make before, a really big deal. I mean, again, we're back into not just as the new pull the old along, it's pulling old along not because, it's not the equivalent of the car pulling a, a, a the buggy that the horse used to pull. Correct. It's, it's enabling the extension of the value of something that was already inherently valuable. Yeah. See, Correct. It's, it's the additive feature. And this is where a lot of pundits and forecasters make a mistake. They they think just because it's old, it's not useful. And I usually you know point out, well, okay, if, If the old isn't useful, tell me why we're still using stone to build so many buildings from. That's a good
0: segue into the next question. Is there a risk we spend a bunch of money on lithium as the mode of transport and serendipity or revelation shows us to to move forward to hydrogen instead, ruining the government investment in lithium?
2: (laughs) Well, Yes, there's a risk. Uh, when anytime the government mandates an allocation of capital, the scales that we're talking about. So we're creating a systemic risk of unprecedented proportions, probably in dollar terms, not quite as big as, but beginning to approach the you know, 2008 financial collapse. That's the scale of money governments are subsidizing and mandating being put to work for lithium-based transportation in electric cars. It's moving to the trillions of dollars of capital being... Uh, dedicated to that effort, and it will it will fail. It will not work, and I pray and hope that sanity will restore before all the capitalists deploy, because it'll be very damaging. Is that an
0: al-agori? <laughs> By the way, Mark, to your point, I mean, the
1: how we've, how we've been, effectively, we're just on the other side of the room in everything else that they don't want to touch, praying that, that that doesn't hurt us
0: in the process of this foolishness. Yeah. Why, why do so many people look at technology as the destroyer of human flourishing instead of the tool of human flourishing? We went from 40% agriculture employment to 2% between about 1925 and 1970 because of tech. And, and now we're the breadbasket of the world with only one and a half percent of adult employment in the United States.
2: Well, you know. The, the, the you know as you know I begin my book with the observation about that te- to be technology is is human we have this sort of construct in the popular debate that technology is some this external thing that's foisted on us and we have to tame it or control like a like a like a beast or a devil I mean humans are humans are inventing machines so we we've, we've always been inventing humans have always we're wired to invent to build mm-hmm. to make technologies what it, it the the very definition. Of a hominid is a tool maker and wielder. That's what defines us. And the tools get better. We instantiate our mental ideas. The you know the smart tools become dynamic and adaptable. This is what we're about. And it's for human flourishing. To your point, the thing I, I want to come back to hydrogen. Just and we don't have to beat this to death, but I will tell you that the affection with hydrogen is prof- profoundly misplaced and maybe. And the fact that we've got a lot of environmental groups switching to hydrogen uh, as their uh, fuel of choice over electric vehicles and lithium uh, is this indication of perhaps the recognition implicit if not explicit that the lithium experiment will fail as a mandate there's going to be lots of electric cars but they're not going to replace them all but hydrogen is, is far more far more problematic far worse and I'd be happy to go on record and, and take and take a bet with uh, that I, I will let me put it this way: the IEA's forecasts, which are the most wildly optimistic, the International Energy Agency's forecasts, for the share of world's energy that will come from hydrogen twenty years from now, they give it five percentage points of the world's energy from hydrogen in twenty years, and I would I would say they're probably wrong by a factor of five.
1: Well, yeah, because they're 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 pretty terrible forecasters on anything, is what we've seen. So
0: we're running short on time, but I, I want to get you into one of our favorite subjects. You wrote about the skills gap. You point out that it's not in STEM. It's in non-STEM degrees. It's also in non-college-skilled trades. Why do, Why do people overhype college for all and STEM as the goal? Is the overproduction of STEM like having too many people in manufacturing, in the manufacturing industries at the end of the 60s?
2: Yeah, it is. And of course, STEM has been oversupplied broadly for, you know, as long as we've been keeping data on it, as I, you know, point out in my book. So we know... It, and there's always episodic, narrow shortages in specific uh, engineering or science domains. It's inevitable. And if you get lucky, you get caught in the right side of that shortage with a degree. Look, the first, the first problem we have, broadly speaking, on the labor markets is, is not a shortage of engineers and scientists, broadly speaking. As you say, it's a shortage of skilled labor. And the good, the good news is that the engineers and scientists are now getting better at uh, upskilling people with uh, lower skills. That is, chat GPT and AI, allow upskilling, uh, robots allow uh, the ability to either amplify or replace the use of people in really menial, repetitive, manual tasks and allow the person to be upskilled to do the cognitive or more difficult tasks, the more varied tasks. We're, we're at a really fascinating pivot that's exactly the opposite of what the you know, conventional wisdom is. It's, there's no reason in the world why you wouldn't, if, if, you're, if you're good at, and I talk to a lot of parents who have children like I do, you know, what should my children study? I said, well, you know, make sure they're, well-educated, flexible, you know, moral people, yeah. but be a coder. I mean,
0: well, yeah, so let's get it. What, at that, what if the robots are the cheapest coders? Well,
2: they all, that's what chat GPT was originally. Semantic Web is, you know, was originally written.
1: Mm-hmm. But, but, Mark, we're we're producing more co- computer science majors right now than any point in the history of the United
2: States.
0: That that have a hard time having a conversation with another human being and can't get a can't get a date until they're thirty years old. By default, no.
2: Well, you know, we have no
1: data on that, by the way. That's just our best guess. I lived, I lived,
0: I I lived in Seattle for forty years. I can (laughs) tell you about the body politic.
2: I know. Well, you know, the Google did a uh, famous study. This is a few years ago now. Looking at, uh, they have enough employees; they can do an internal study to figure out which employees, uh, which skill sets led to employees moving up the 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 chain of. uh, p- promotions and management, uh, you know, were they the coders? Well, anyway, the short story is they found that, the, to your point, human skills, uh, creativity, and the ability to work with other people was more, far more valuable and correlated more success than whether they were a mathematician, a coder, or an engineer. And, yes, what we're doing is we're oversupplying the market with, with computing science degrees. And what will happen is that, like every other engineering discipline that's been oversupplied in the past, most of them will not get jobs in those disciplines, which is again we have a lot of data on this. Uh, we we've been overgraduating engineers and scientists for a very very long time. This is not this is not new.
0: One one last favorite question we've been looking forward to asking you is wh- why do you think that Berkshire Hathaway, J P Morgan, and Amazon were unsuccessful in their effort to apply technology to the healthcare system in a way that made. Uh, Significant improvement, economic
1: sense
2: for them, e- economic
0: sense and, and significant improvements in, in life.
2: The, wow, well, they did the equivalent of try to. Uh, they did it too early, so it'll be no different than trying to f- uh, form a company like FedEx in 1937. Uh, uh, or mm. uh, it, the the capabilities to bring uh, the combination of AI, which is important here, that's actually effective and demonstrably so with superior personal diagnostics which are emerging in you know devices and all manner of things. Those things we, we know are going to bring productivity revolutions to healthcare. but they're all pre-commercial or just any commercial viability and they, they took a step out on the, <laughs> on the limb before the technologies were ready, frankly. and it was a, it was a noble idea uh, too early, probably too early by uh, when did they do that six years ago, I, I think five years ago. So they're totally by a decade. So a few years from now, I think you'll begin to see some, some t- the tipping over in the productivity function of healthcare. You know, productivity in healthcare is like everything else. You want better outcomes for fewer inputs. And the inputs here are, you know, labor hours and dollars. And the outputs are I want better diagnostic results because di- it's all about diagnosis. It's a data problem. It's an information problem. We have mm-hmm. to amplify the doctors. And that that's a classic science problem. All. You know, as a as a former practitioner of real work, I mean, I, I used to look at the all the medical diagnostic tools that anyway any physicist would. They're all the same class of tools. My best friend in college, who got went into medical research, he was a terrific physicist working in ultrasound. The the tools are are starting to get astonishingly better, and as we make the tools astonishingly better, the ability to collect information on the edges with us personally. And by the way, back to use case. A use case for 5G, if I can collect the quantity of information that I would really want to collect about my own biochemical physiological conditions and create a uh, a virtual digital twin just for me as I think about how I want to manage my personal health, the the, the, the amount of data and bandwidth required for that are off the charts, huge. And it's not a crazy idea anymore. It's just not implementable quite yet. Sure. So uh, there's a, quite a few things we didn't get
1: to. But again, like, I, I just love the themes that you pulled out of your book, Mark, um, where you're looking at old frameworks to understand the new frameworks. This is a must the, read, for The folks. new technologies, you know, moving forward, old things. Um, like we're in the mall business. Who are our best new tenants? Online-only retailers of the past, right? It's like, ha, perfect example.
2: Yeah. The, mall's, the mall's coming back. I've got a whole thesis on, you know, on retail. I love retail. Retail you know, I almost, I almost wrote that chapter. Uh, I was going to steal, you know, je pense dans je suis. I was going to, I was going to title the chapter, je dans je suis. I, I buy, therefore I am, because people are natural buyers of stuff. They want to shop. Exactly.
1: Yeah. So, uh, Mark, is there anything else that, that we haven't talked about that you think needs to be mentioned? Because again, we're just, you know, huge fans of this book and, and we think it's just such a wonderful framework of looking at the world today.
2: Well, I really appreciate the. The endorsement, the uh, the love, and the conversation—it's there's there's so much more to talk about in terms of the state of the world and our—if you like our competition with China, as you know, my appendix, I, mm-hmm. my conclusion, I I conclude—you know, I love China. I've been to a dozen cities in China. I like the Chinese, not Chinese government. Uh, but this is our century, not the Chinese century. We we haven't finished, and I think that that's a reason for Americans to be very optimistic about thinking about our our, our place in the world and. And trying to restore some optimism and sanity to our political process, because well, that, that matters too.
0: Yeah, you mentioned, you mentioned the optimism. We're optimistic about the millennial generation. There's 92 million people, and that's great demographics, and no one besides us talks about that.
2: Well, that, and I, I can tell you, I'm much more optimistic than most people about the, the Gen Z's that follow them, because I think if you look at the, the, if you tease out the demographic trends that are now emerging, behavioral trends, in terms of their buying behaviors, their what they're looking to do, how they're, I, I mean, uh, a jury's out. You know, all all the naysayers could be right. This could be a, you know, bunch of lazy, you know, uh, entitled. I, I don't know that that's the case. I not I'm not buying it, and I'm I'm optimistic about them as well.
1: Well, and you point out that society always emulates those with wealth ultimately, and so watching college-educated women have more children than non-college-educated women. Uh, shows you something about what is a normal good, something with higher income, you attain more of it, right? And I think that's a really interesting dynamic that you insert in your book. I mean, that's a whole discussion
2: in and of itself, Mark. I insert. I was going to do a whole chapter on that, uh, and I decided it was the distraction from the book. All right, well, when you get that, why don't you just write we'll, a book on it? We'll go on it because it's one of our favorite subjects. Oh, it's so, incredibly important. I mean, I'm, yeah, we agree. There's, there's, there's something, something really fascinating going on on the lead, leading demographic edge of wealth with uh, more children. In fact, you probably saw the data are out uh, about the, you, know, you should have expected a little echo boom bump uh, from the evil lockdowns. And it looks like that's, I mean, I've watched it anecdotally. It looks like that's what's happened, but it's highly wealth correlated. They know that, you know, yeah. the, you know the, the, to be the trope is, this is the trope, societies become wealthier, they have fewer children because that's what's been going on for the last. Well, and that's
1: a lie that's been peddled.
2: Well, that's what they say, but yeah. but, but that may, but it, but maybe that's true up to a point, and then as wealth goes beyond some point, it tips over, goes to a different direction. Again, your cycles. They recycle. We don't know that because we've yeah. never had a society where that experiment has been done at scale, and we're now doing it.
1: So, Mark, for our, our listeners, um, I mentioned your podcast, "The Last Optimist," that they can find out there. Well, where else can people follow you?
2: Oh, the magic, Doctor Google. One. There's a lot more about. I don't that. I prefer, but my website, the Tech Hyphen Pundit, Tech Pundit website, is, is got all the things that I've written. Awesome, and and you're on Twitter as well. I do the Twitter, LinkedIn things because they seem to be the best professional environments to operate in. Uh, in in the, I don't I don't do personal public policy, politics stuff in my in my public sphere because I just don't. Sure. It's, it's bad for health. That's it's bad for health. We. Neither do awesome.
1: we. Well, well we want to thank you so much, Mark. This has been a lot of fun. Um, I want to thank my dad for hosting this. Mark's book, The Cloud Revolution provides, like I said earlier, an incredible framework for the exponential progress of technology and how existing human spheres will move forward at a more than linear, uh, like our discussion on babies or the old economy, etc. Our audience should get this book. You need this book. Tech execs, to Mark's point earlier, need this book. Energy execs need this book. I can't think of an executive that doesn't need this book, frankly. If you enjoyed our discussion with Mark uh, on this, go to Apple, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Give us a review, rating, or recommendation uh, for other podcast listeners. Um, For our listeners, if you have a great book like Mark's that you'd like to recommend, email podcast at smeadcap.com. That's podcast at smeadcap.com. You can also send suggestions to us on our Twitter handle, at Cap, Thank you for joining us for A Book With Legs podcast. We look forward to the next episode.
0: Thank you for listening to A Book With Legs, a podcast brought to you by Smead Capital Management. The material provided in this podcast is for informational use only and should not be construed as investment advice. You can learn more about Smead Capital Management and its products at SmeadCap.com or by calling your financial advisor.